0: If you happen to read fairy tales, you will observe that one idea runs from one end of them to the other. The idea that peace and happiness can only exist on some condition. This idea, which is the core of ethics, is the core of the nursery tales. Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Jeffers Podcast, or if you're in a not-safe-for-work-be-damned environment. Jen Frankel reads random shit. I am Jen Frankel, writer of said random shit, but at the beginning of this episode, you heard me read a quote from G.K. Chesterton. This episode is Never Ending Stories. At the heart of writing, and this is not nearly as obvious as you might think, are stories. And fairy tales are the meat of storytelling. They're the meat of me. Whoever tells you that all the stories have already been told is, well, a moron. But more importantly, they are without fairy tales. Fairy tales remind us that every person can have a story if they're brave enough or true enough or lucky enough. Everyone has that potential. And if you think that all the stories have already been told, it's only because you have given up hope for your own. Fairy tales were the first thing I read. I collect them from all over the world. They weave and slide and merge to create legends and mythos, gods and mortals, kingdoms of animals and aliens, and so much more. The fairy tale is at the heart of stories that satisfy you, that really speak to some essential need in you for completion or ambition, or just a sense of home. I also like to write in a fairy tale style. It forces me to strip away all the artifice writers love to use to dazzle readers into thinking we are smarter than we are. It forces me to strip down the narrative to its elements, alchemically, and combine them in the hope of making gold. Obsessed by a fairy tale, we spend our lives searching for a magic door and a lost kingdom of peace Eugene O'Neill I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. Mae West This first story is an excerpt from one of the first fairy tales I ever wrote as a script for a little film at art school. It's called Voices. Voices. Once upon a time, when the world was young, all was silent because the animals hadn't found their voices. All the animals lived together in one place, eating berries and leaves, and generally minding their own business. Now one day, the lion became dissatisfied with his diet of berries and leaves. He had strong, sharp teeth, more suited to, well, crunching up sheep and deer than fruit. So the lion went to the spirit of the grove where the animals lived, who was a fairy capable of the most wonderful magic. The fairy could see by the look on the lion's face that he was unhappy, so she asked him what the matter was. Since all the animals could speak in her presence, in her own language, the lion said, "'Fairy, I am tired of these berries and leaves. See, I have sharp teeth and claws.' strong legs for running. I am much more suited to eating sheep and deer than fruit." The fairy nodded sadly and said, "'It is the way of the new world,' and the lion ran off to eat sheep and deer." Now the sheep and deer were sorely afraid when the lion began eating their brothers and cousins, so they went to the fairy too. "'Fairy,' they said, for they too could speak in the presence of the fairy. The lion has gone mad, and he is eating our brothers and cousins. You must protect us. The fairy shook her head sadly and said, It is the way of the new world. And they went away. Soon there began to be fewer sheep and deer in the grove. The lion was a quiet hunter, and he could sneak up behind a deer and kill it with a swipe of his paw before the deer knew he was there. And if another deer saw the lion sneaking up on a brother or cousin, it was helpless to warn him. The sheep and deer went back to the fairy and told her what was happening. Fairy, they said, you told the lion that he could eat the sheep and the deer, but we are defenseless. And since he is a great glutton, soon there will be none of us left. The fairy said, It is the way of the new world. But nonetheless, she called the lion and the sheep and deer together. Lion, said the fairy, I gave you permission to eat the sheep and deer instead of the berries and leaves, but you have become a great glutton, and soon there will be no sheep or deer left. The lion hung his head because he knew the fairy spoke the truth. The fairy said, Since I can't take away the lion's gluttony, and since I can't take away his taste for meat, and since I can't protect the sheep and deer or restrain the lion, I have decided to give each of you a gift. It is called a voice. The animals looked at each other because although they loved the fairy and always loved to see her magic, they all felt uneasy. They remembered her talk of the new world and it made them afraid. The voice will not change what you are, said the fairy. It will only change your silence. From now on you will be able to talk to each other even when I am not with you but it is up to you to decide how your voices will sound. The sheep conferred, then said, We would like a warning voice to tell our friends when they are in danger. It's a good choice, said the fairy, and she gave the sheep a voice called bleat, and it sounded like, The lion said, I want a voice that sounds like, a hurricane, a voice that will sound like a, a thunderclap, so I will feel proud when I hear myself speak. The fairy nodded and said, Your voice will be that, and it will also give warning when you approach the sheep and deer. You must be careful that in your pride you do not scare all of your prey away. So the fairy gave the lion a voice called Roar, Then it sounded like a thunderclap rolling over a plain. The deer conferred and said, Fairy, we deer are proud. Silence suits us best. The fairy nodded and said, Your voice shall be as you wish. And she gave the deer a voice called Kidon, which is silent and spoken directly to the heart. The youngest deer waited until all the other animals had returned to their places in the grove. And then she said in her new voice of Kidon, Fairy, What is this new voice, really? But the fairy said, It is the way of the new world. Now, sometimes I like to venture into more mythic territory writers have always recognized the power of myths to connect supernatural phenomenon and all two human emotions. This is from a story that touches on the legend of Oedipus. It's called The End of the Sphinx. The Sphinx was lovely. Everyone told her so. Well, some things are harder to believe than others. The Sphinx lived all alone on a rocky promontory at the height of a stony mountain pass. There was not much to do, not much to see. When she was in a restless mood, she would climb to the top of the pass, using flaps of her nearly uselessly heavy gold wings to fight for balance. Her claws raked the rough boulders of the ascent, and in return the rocks scraped her tough leathery skin, bringing coppery blood in the wake of the pain but from the highest point in the pass, she could see the world. It looked like this. Turning towards sunrise, she could see an expanse of gray rock dotted with gnarled ancient olive groves. From the groves, smoke rose in the evenings. These were where people lived, and people avoided the Sphinx. Her vision was perfect. A hawk's eyes but all her perfect eyes told her was that whenever humans turned their own sights to her airy, they shuddered and looked away. Towards sunset, where Apollo's chariot sank nightly away in a blaze of horizontal fire, was the sea. Humans plied the sea in their tiny toy ships, intent on distant vistas, and never, ever knew that the Sphinx was watching. She liked that. There was no shudder when sailors looked toward her far-off perch. All they saw was the majesty of the mountains. Certainly she had visitors. They were the reason she never stayed long away from her post beside the rocky path. The visitors were the ones who told her she was beautiful. It wasn't for the compliments that she stayed in the lower parts of the pass, the places where there was no gorgeous view or tiny glimpses of the glory of the God's world. It was for the company. One day, in the eons gone by, when men had not yet learned to fear her existence, a man came through her pass. He had been separated from his caravan, but was determined to find a way over the mountains with or without a learned guide. She was hiding, as was her custom when other creatures approached. But this man brought out a feeling of pity in her. Maybe it was yearning, but... How could she admit that, she whose genesis was divine, how could she admit a desire for contact with mortals? As he approached, she emerged, wingtip by wingtip from behind her concealing boulder. The weak sun glinted off the gold of her headdress, off her blazing feathers, and for a moment he was blinded. Then he shrieked and fainted dead away. She leapt from her promontory and... Fidgeted, her lion's claws scraping at the stone beneath her paws. Had she killed it? She closed her hawk eyes and listened and heard him breathe. Her tongue was the most gentle thing about her, so with it she put the hair aside from his eyes and moved his sprawled body into a more comfortable position. With her claws she straightened his robe, not daring to touch his fragile body with their razor sharpness. And she waited. His eyes fluttered open. It's a dream, was what he said. Sphinx cleared her throat. She had not spoken aloud to another living creature capable of understanding words in centuries. "'I am glad you are not hurt,' she said formally. Then, with sudden concern, "'You aren't hurt, are you?' His delirium continued. "'You are so beautiful,' he said." She blushed. Goddesses were beautiful, not monsters. Stay with me, she said. Please, keep me company. His brow furrowed. I can't. I'm due in Corinth. I must get to my ship. Her clear eyes filled with tears. He was beautiful himself. She had not known that about humans, that they could so resemble the gods. His eyes were blue and as clear as her own, although... She could not know this, having no looking glass to use for the comparison. Please stay, she repeated. I can't, said the man. I ha I have lots of things I must do. But someone will stay. You are so pretty. The Sphinx returned to her ledge in a powerful spring, her lion muscles rippling. And from that height she watched the man go. He retreated from her glancing back over his shoulder again and again until she realized what she might have what she must have was terrible beauty one leap and she was airborne just long enough to come down hard on that man's back and that was how it went she did not know her legend that she was supposed to ask a riddle and that the price of failure was death for the traveler She just knew that, instead of her path being shunned, she was suddenly sought out. The gods had done it, Hermes probably, in a fit of malicious humor, had spread the tale. The legend grew that a prize of inestimable value was waiting for the man who could beat the Sphinx at her own game. And because humans are humans, and because men are men, no one considered that the story had one obvious hole in it. Listeners managed on the whole to rationalize away the problem that the Sphinx... "'had nothing to gain in the contest, and everything to lose. "'Certainly she ate the men she killed. "'There was little enough food in the pass. "'She grew sleek, and her skinny body filled out "'until her down gleamed and her fur shimmered. "'She was more beautiful than ever. "'Will you stay?' she asked each traveller. "'I am very lonely. "'Or will you take me with you and introduce me to your people? "'I am nothing to fear.' Some ran. They died the quickest. Some backed away slowly, afraid to turn away from her. Sometimes these did themselves in, falling off the path to a crushing death. A few laughed, their bravado and acrid scent to her. Those she ripped to pieces and left for the carrion birds. The final excerpt I'm going to read for you is a work in progress. Like the end of the Sphinx, it works with a traditional kind of quest story. But unlike Sphinx, what I'm doing here is not just looking at an old story through the eyes of another participant. Here, I aim to use the fairy tale for what it does best, to suggest a moral using the comfortable framework of a quest story full of princes and princesses, curses and queens. By knowing the tropes of the fairy story, I can subvert them where I wish, or use them in new ways to create a new moral framework more in keeping with the central ideas and ideals of my own work. Here is the beginning of Emerald and Ambergris, a tale of two cursed princesses, and the prince that loved only the most beautiful one. Once Upon a Time is how this story is meant to start. And if it did, I would tell you of a city in a far-off land where a king and queen were desperate for a child. I would tell you that the queen became pregnant at last through the blessings of a good fairy, and how she bore not one, but two little girls, twins, both as perfect as every baby is, especially in the eyes of adoring parents. Then I would tell you of the christening at which everyone in the kingdom celebrated the two royal births, and the way the sky suddenly darkened as the wise women of the realm gathered to bestow their traditional offerings of grace and beauty. Of course, the blackened clouds and thunder from a sky that was clear only a moment before was followed by the appearance in a flash of light and sound of a wicked fairy. Her name was Mab, she who all had thought was dead years before. Of course, Mab was furious at not having received either an invitation nor the handsome gifts bestowed upon her sisters. Golden plateware, jewels set in silver, a mirror for each invited sprite made of diamond, backed with pearl. And I'm certain you think you can probably guess the rest. Although, I would not be so quick to judge if I was you. In the eighteen years following the birth of the princesses nothing more was seen of mab trade continued between kingdoms in that part of the world and as the princesses reached the age of maturity a young prince came seeking a bride in the way of things he had heard that of the two princesses one was the loveliest maiden of her age bright-haired and green eyes with a complexion of milk and lips of rose petal softness of the other He had heard only the rumour that she had taken the brunt of Mab's curse and was thus never seen in public. His curiosity, never one of his more prominent attributes, was not piqued enough to wonder just what the wicked fairy had inflicted on the innocent child, now grown to the same ripe state of womanhood as her sister. As far as he knew, no one, no one, sought the hand of the second, and for the first many had attempted and continued to try to win her hand. He intended to be the first to succeed. And so, with a young man's self-assuredness, he pushed his way past the other princes, counts, and dukes, and found himself at last in a position to woo the royal beauty. Emerald was nothing if not proper, and more he really couldn't tell. She was cool in the way of beautiful girls, assured of their attractiveness never saying more than she must to answer his studied conversational salvos, nor offering any more than the most plight curiosity about himself. He was smitten, though, and knew himself to be utterly and helplessly in love. The only small imperfection in their otherwise no, fairy-tale courtship was Emerald's insistence on carrying with her everywhere... The ugliest doll he had ever imagined. Its pearl-button eyes were shown to be cheap fakes by the chips around, their edges revealing bone beneath. Its hair was yarn, not gold or silver thread like the dolls of other fine ladies. Its clothing was faded calico like that worn by the most menial of labors, many times mended and patched. It irritated him, this hideous object, in a way few things ever did at least the way few things did without his taking immediate action to ensure that the irritant was banished forever from his presence. It wasn't that he was particularly sensitive or susceptible to influence, quite the opposite. It was because he was so used to getting his own way by force of personality or royal prerogative, he was unused to even the concept that something that didn't please him should linger in his August presence. And thus it was that the next tragedy on our road to the end of the tale occurred. The prince, in all honesty, had done his very best and lasted far longer than he would have in any other circumstance. He tried to ignore the grotesque, leering plaything tucked under the princess's arm, and for a while he was able to congratulate himself on his strength of character in controlling his sometimes impetuous temper. But after several weeks of wooing the princess in what he considered his most exquisite manner, a textbook campaign of gallant persistence against necessary modesty, he had had enough. The itch of irritation had become an extra presence in his love making, as if some foul odor or repulsive taste hung about her. He found her as beautiful and as pleasantly appealing as always, but her coolness, which had initially felt like a calming breeze against his fire, had ceased to appease him. In all honesty, he wasn't even sure how to deal with the violence that surged in his noble breast. In essential point of fact, he was just not used to not getting his own way. And so, as the princess turned to indicate with a dainty hand, an island holding of her father's crown just short of the horizon, he took the ugly thing from her by force, one hand on her white shoulder while tearing the toy from her with the other. It was the first time he had ever shown violence toward a lady, and it was impossible to know who was more shocked, the princess or himself. He had launched the doll over the parapet into the frothing sea below, all in one smooth motion that had encompassed the theft of it and the physical restraining of the object of his affection. It vanished into the foam far, far beneath them, lost in the rolling waves. The princess, not even allowing him a last look at her lovely face, covered that visage with her hands and raced for the safety of the palace in a flurry of silk and satin. And that was the last he ever saw of Emerald. But forever is an oddly fluid concept in fairy tales if you know much about these things. Forever is like once upon a time, or happily ever after for that matter. You know that something must happen once the bride and groom are joined, or once the giant is slain, but often the stories are silent on such matters. In this case, the most the princess would offer to the prince, despite his desperate offers of his most sincere apologies and restitutions, was a note saying that her sister would see him even if she would not. For his part, being young and typically human, the forever of his separation from his love emerald was something he was determined to to defeat, the way he had beaten foes in battle. The forever of the toy's loss was already immaterial to him. His forever, in essence, he held far more vital than Emerald's. No matter how devastated she was by the loss of her doll, his grief had to be greater, must it not? The prince was admittedly not entirely without curiosity when it came to meeting Embergris, the second princess, whose face, it was said, no one in the palace besides her parents had ever seen. It was a new thing, maybe, this slight pricking of interest. Just what havoc had the wicked fairy's curse wreaked on the innocent twin, now grown to the same state of womanhood as his beloved emerald? What kind of pitiable creature was she? Surely no princess could be hideous. Fairy tales help us rethink our entrenched beliefs and examine our prejudices. They let us play make-believe with our deepest insecurities and our most secret hopes. And if they have the tendency to oversimplify big issues, well, maybe that's just what you need to cut to the heart of a situation. Next time on the Jeffers Podcast, I will be exploring... Well, again, I don't know. So suffice to say that for now, you can go to my website, jenfrankel.com, and uh, find me at wattpad.com, username jenfrankel. You can also read the first novel of my supernatural thriller series, Blood and Magic, there, The Last Rite. If you enjoyed what you've heard today, please follow me on Twitter, at Jen Frankel or on Instagram, at jennfrankelauthor. I also write books, and you can find them on your country's Amazon website. You can also subscribe to the podcast on TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, iTunes, or your favorite app. I would love to hear your comments and questions. Be sure to rate this podcast wherever you listen, and you will have my absolutely unending gratitude, and perhaps even a wish or two. Thank you for spending time with me. Keep reading, writing, and listening. And I'll see you next time on Jen Frankel Reads Random Shit. All content on the Jeffers podcast is written and composed by Jen Frankel. Edited by Sultan Ridwan.